Here at Crepuscular Academy, the work of the week is done. The classrooms are dark and empty and mostly silent. The more dangerous textbooks have been locked away. So why don't you join us in my study as we delve once more into Dr. Longshadow's miscellany of the uncanny. Good evening. My name is Dr. James Archipelago Longshadow. Welcome once again to Crepuscular Academy. This week you find us in a somewhat different location. Here at the Academy we have been enjoying the long summer holiday, so beloved of both pupils and staff. In tribute, I thought it would be fitting if we relocated ourselves to the school's summer house, for this evening's tale. It is a beautiful evening. The haze of the day still hangs in the air. The sky is at symphony's end, fading gracefully from blues to purples, and then to a deep summer black. The birds still grace us with their song. A perfect end to a perfect day. But then again, I would expect no less. The summer house was gifted to the Academy in 1914 by Mrs. Elizabeth Fraser, a former pupil of the school who went on to become the world's finest temporal architect. Put simply, she used time in the same way that others used brick and mortar. With her fine skills and fierce genius, she was able to perfect a process of encasing moments of time. Here in the summer house, she so kindly built for us, it is always a balmy summer evening from 1910 or thereabouts. And so here we have gathered myself and the few pupils who, for some reason or another, will be making the academy their home over the holidays. We have foregone the traditional hot chocolate and biscuits, and instead, this week our refreshments take the form of fresh ginger ale and a blackcurrant sorbet. Before we begin, a word of advice. This week's tale deals with matters that may upset some, and is not recommended for the very young, or indeed, the very old. Let us now continue with another tale from Dr. Longshadow's Miscellany of the Uncanny. Lucy was nine when she killed for the first time. In her defense, the death was an accident, and would not have happened if it hadn't been for her grandfather. It was the day before the last day of summer. Lucy had been visiting her grandparents with her mother and father. All week they had enjoyed gloriously sunny weather, and the treats that accompanied such days. Picnics, trips to the beach, happy long evenings playing in her grandparents' garden. And though the thing that Lucy enjoyed most was being with her grandfather. He was the kindest, funniest, naughtiest person she knew. He was the sort of person who could make everything better by just being there. He never said a cross word, and always had time to play with her, or make her laugh by singing songs that he shouldn't have been singing. 
Her favorite was the one about Granny being stuck in the lavatory. On the day of killing, Lucy's parents and grandmother had decided to go shopping in a nearby town that boasted more antique shops than anywhere else in the country. This sounded deathly boring to Lucy, and her grandfather agreed. So it was decided that they should stay at home in the cottage that sat between the wilder woods and the village churchyard, whilst the grown-ups, her grandmother's choice of words, went out for the day. No sooner had the car turned the corner and disappeared from view, when Lucy's grandfather told her to follow him. He had a twinkle in his eye that usually indicated that some new adventure lay ahead, so Lucy readily took his hand. He led her to the side of a garden that met the graveyard and pointed up. A branch belonging to a tree that lived in the graveyard was hanging over the fence. Do you know what kind of tree that is, Bonnie Lass? Bonnie Lass was what her grandfather called her, and she loved it. No, Granda, said Lucy. Her grandfather explained that it was a yew tree, and had been standing in that spot for longer than there had been a churchyard, probably longer than there had been a village. He also went on to explain that, technically, because the branch was hanging over his fence and invading his garden, that particular part of the tree was his property, to do with as he wished. Even at her young age, Lucy wasn't entirely convinced by her grandfather's legal argument and thought that the vicar, not to mention her grandmother, would have something to say on the matter. But they weren't here and her grandfather clearly had something spectacularly mischievous in mind. And she was right. He fetched a saw and proceeded to amputate a length of the branch. He held it out to her, and she took it in her hands. This wood, her grandfather said, was used to make the finest bows for soldiers for hundreds of years. And if it was good enough for them, but it's good enough for my best girl. And so... With the sun shining down, Lucy sat sipping lemonade whilst her grandfather whittled and bent the wood to his will and fashioned her a yew tree bow. He also made her an arrow, just one, that was unsuitably sharp. Now, he said when it was finished, safety rules. Rule number one, don't tell Granny about the bow. Lucy left, and her grandfather told her to go off into the woods to try out her new toy. She spent most of the afternoon getting used to aiming and firing. She learnt to roll down her sleeve so that her bow arm wasn't stung by the string. She learnt how to hold her breath as she let go of the arrow so that the bow kept still. Her prey that afternoon were the trees and bushes of the forest. She was becoming quite adept at finding her target, managing to poke holes in individual leaves and taking the heads of flowers. Eventually, she heard her grandfather calling her in for tea. She decided to fire off one more shot. She leaned back and drew the string towards her as far as she could, feeling the wood bend in her hand. When she felt it could go no further, she loosed the arrow into the sky towards the sun. She watched as it rose higher and higher, climbing above the trees before arcing downwards and out of sight. There was a single, sharp cry, and then silence. Lucy froze for a moment, before running towards where the sound had come from. Behind a bush, she found the magpie. It was on the ground, with her arrow sticking out of its breast. It flapped its wings once, and then lay still, 
Lucy watched as one black pearl of an eye seemed to focus on her for a moment and then become dull. The bird was dead. She didn't know what to do. This was the worst thing that had ever happened. Panic fought with guilt and revulsion as she thought about how much trouble she would be in, and then how much trouble her grandfather would be in. It was this last thought that determined her next actions. Using a flat stone she found nearby, she started scraping away at the summer-hardened ground until she had made what she hoped was a deep enough hole, a deep enough grave. Gingerly, she picked up one end of the arrow and tried to shake the dead bird into the hole. It wouldn't move. The thought of actually touching the bird filled her with horror, so she found a stick and by pushing and prodding, managed to pry it off the end of the arrow. The magpie fell into the hole with a thud and stared back at her. She had to close her eyes as she pushed the earth over it and only open them when she was sure the creature was covered. She piled more and more dirt on top, and then topped off the small mound with some leaves. She stepped back and surveyed her work. You would never know it was there. Without really knowing why, Lucy plucked a long dandelion and threw it on top of the mound. She wiped the blood from the arrow with a horse chestnut leaf and hid it, with the yew tree bow, under a bush before running back to the cottage. That evening, her parents put her silence during dinner down to tiredness and perhaps the thought of going back to the city after such a long, lovely week. Lucy slept fitfully that night, her dreams full of black and white feathers and accusing eyes. A week later, Lucy's grandfather was dead. As her mother had sat red-eyed and staring out of a window, Lucy's father had slowly and carefully tried to explain he needn't have bothered. After he had said the words, Your grandas died, Lucy, everything else was just noise to her. The odd word or phrase got through. I in his sleep, and peaceful, and quite old. But none of that changed the fact that he was dead. He was dead, and the world was a darker, poorer place, where they wouldn't be able to play games or sing rude songs. A world where no one would ever call her Bonnie Lass again. The funeral was held in the little church next to her grandparents' house. There were lots of people there Lucy didn't know. Everyone was crying or murmuring about how sorry they were. The vicar gave a nice speech about her grandfather. People even laughed at a couple of his stories. Lucy did not. And then the time came to put her grandfather in the ground. Lucy stood next to her mother and father as the coffin was carefully lowered into the cold, damp hole. She couldn't understand how someone so full of life, how her grandeur could be put away like this, left in the cold earth. It wasn't right he would be all alone. That night, as she lay in bed in her grandparents' house, one word came back to her over and over. It was a word that the vicar had used. Sorrow. She had asked her father what it meant, and he had explained that it was a word to describe how sad you felt after you lose something or someone. But she'd heard that word before somewhere. And as she stared out of the window into the dark, she remembered. One for sorrow. It was from a rhyme. It was an old rhyme that her grandfather had told her once when they'd been walking amongst the trees. One for sorrow. One what? 
were magpie. It came to her now. It was a rhyme about magpies and what luck they brought you. Lucy sat upright in bed. One for sorrow, one for sorrow, it was her fault. She had killed the magpie and her granda had died. She knew that if she told her parents what she was thinking, they would have told her not to be silly. But she also knew deep down that she was right. One for sorrow, she whispered in the dark. Two for joy. She stood up and looked into the night that prowled between the trees on the other side of the garden and knew what she had to do. Lucy was nine when she killed for the second time. This time it was not an accident. She had found the bow and arrow easily enough, still hidden behind the bush. She had worried that it might have been discovered since she had stowed it away, but in truth hardly anyone ever walked through the woods behind her grandparents' house. She had paced unerringly through the trees, weaving in and out, tracing her route exactly from the last time she had been there, almost as if she were being guided, and there, still hidden by the bush, was the bow. Close by, too, was the magpie's grave. The flower she had left was wilted and brown, and the leaves had mulched down, making the mound, if anything, even more obvious. She tried not to think about what was happening underneath the pile of earth. She carried on walking into the woods. Deeper and deeper she walked until she found what she was looking for. A small clearing with a bush that was big enough for her to clamber between its branches and become unseen. She shuffled into her hiding place and got comfortable. She might well have to be there for a long time, but she was determined. All morning she sat and waited with a stillness and a patience beyond her years, just before lunchtime, she thought about giving up. A few moments more, and she would have abandoned the bow and her plan and made her way home. However, fate had a different idea. Just as she was about to get up, a magpie flew into the clearing and settled on the ground just over six feet away from where Lucy hid. It hopped around, nuzzling the ground. With painful slowness, Lucy raised her bow and put the arrow to it. Her heart was beating wildly, but she kept her breathing steady, and centimetre by centimetre, she drew back the string and aimed. Just before letting the arrow fly, she reached down inside herself, and wished as hard as she had ever wished before. Two for joy, she whispered, and fired. There was no cry from her victim this time. The arrow found its target, and the bird died instantly. Later, after once again making a grave, Lucy went home and waited. All afternoon she waited, her parents and her grandmother putting her silence down to her sorrow. Long into the evening she waited, but still nothing happened. The family were just sitting down to dinner, when there were three loud knocks on the front door. Who on earth can that be? said her grandmother. Lucy's heart froze. Her father got up to investigate. Lucy almost called after him. She almost told him not to open the door. But instead she closed her eyes and pressed her hands so tightly together under the table that her knuckles turned white. Her father pulled up the chain on the door and opened it. A tall lady stood outside in the gloom. Good evening, the lady said. My name is Mrs. Abernathy of Abernathy, Crompton and Fitch. As soon as Lucy heard the woman's voice, she opened her eyes and breathed out in relief. The tall lady, Mrs. Abernathy, was from a firm of investment brokers. Lucy had no idea what investment brokers were, but her father explained to her later when they were celebrating that it was to do with money, a bit like posh gambling. 
She came to the front room and explained that Lucy's grandfather had, without telling anyone, been investing money for years in a small company in Scotland who had been unsuccessfully looking for gold in a remote cave system in the wilds of the Highlands. However, Mrs. Abernathy told the Open Mouth family, the company had that very morning discovered a rich seam of gold, and as such the investors were now all very wealthy. As Lucy's grandfather was dead, the money went to his nearest and dearest. It was Lucy's mother who found her voice first, and asked Mrs. Abernathy exactly how much money they would be receiving. Mrs. Abernathy told them, I won't be vulgar and reveal the amount. It is enough to say that Lucy's mother and father would be able to give up their jobs, and the family would be able to buy a lovely house near to grandmother, where they would all live happily ever after. That night, Lucy lay in bed and smiled to herself. It might not have been exactly what she had wished for, but there was definitely joy in the house. Through the floor she could hear the muffled voices of her parents and grandmother as they chattered and made plans for the future. She herself had been wondering about asking for a pony. There was a knock at the bedroom door. She could have sworn that she could still hear three people's voices drifting up, but she was probably wrong. It was likely to be her grandmother coming to bring her some milk and toast, a long-held bedtime tradition. The knock came again. Lucy wondered why she didn't just come in. Come in, Granny, she giggled. Oh, of course. Granny was holding a tray, Lucy thought. She jumped out of bed and padded across to the door. When she opened it, there was no one there, and the corridor was empty. The words had come from behind her, in her room, spoken in a voice that she knew, but that now rasped and gurgled. Slowly, Lucy turned and froze in horror at the sight she saw. She could not move, she could not scream, all the breath had been taken from her. The moon slipped from behind the clouds and Lucy could see him now. She could see the changes that death and the grave had brought to his face. She could see the dead birds that he held, one in each hand, dripping black blood onto the carpet. He held out his arms to his granddaughter. They found Lucy the next morning. There were three aspects of the situation, but nobody could ever explain. First of all, how she had died. It was supposed by the doctor who attended, a young lady who was not long out of medical school but very sure of herself, that the child's heart had given out to some previously undiagnosed condition, tragic but not unheard of. But then there was her face. When her poor father had come into the room that dreadful morning, he had been greeted by the sight of his daughter lying on the floor of her bedroom, her face twisted and frozen in a look of utter terror. Once again the doctor, who had only just moved to the area, and could have quite frankly done without this happening in her first week, suggested that what had been taken for terror would actually be a grimace of pain. However, even the most rational young doctor was completely unable to explain the final most disturbing fact. Lucy's mouth was filled with black and white feathers. There now, 
The sun has set on another perfect day in the summer house, and we must away before the mechanisms begin the process of resetting the time bubble. I hope you enjoyed this week's tale. Please remember, it is only a tale, a trifle, a confectionery. However, I would also remind you that stories, like old nursery rhymes, always have a pearl of truth hidden deep within their folds. Please, join us next time as we share another story from Dr. Longshadow's Miscellany of the Uncanny. <laughs>